The St. Charles County Veterans Museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. The museum would not exist without the donations of our generous community. Your donations ensure the museum continues to share and preserve the stories of our veterans. Would you like to be part of something special? To donate, visit sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. The primary purpose of the Dog Tag Podcast is to educate. The views, information, or opinions expressed on the Dog Tag Podcast are solely the views of the individuals or guests involved and by no means represent absolute facts. The Dog Tag does not accept responsibility for their views or comments. The Dog Tag Podcast may at times cover sensitive topics including, but not limited to, suicide, abuse, violence, severe mental illness, sex, drugs, and alcohol addiction. You are advised to refrain from watching or listening to the Dog Tag Podcast if you are likely to be offended or adversely impacted by any of these topics. Neither the company, host, director, or guests shall at any time be liable for the content covered, causing offense, distress, or other reaction. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesry at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Welcome to the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum with your host, Jason Galvin and Jim Higgins. Today we have in studio Lieutenant Colonel Steve Brown, Vietnam veteran and pilot. Jim, go ahead and kick us off. Well, welcome, Steve, to the museum. Uh, You've been a regular at the museum now uh, since we opened, and uh, I I think you've got a very illustrious career and it's been... Very interesting stories, but uh, the first thing I want to kind of start off, I do know your story a little bit by now, but I want to ask you uh, why you decided on the Air Force early on. And, and and I do recall that you were, at the time, before you went into the military, you were a band leader, band director? It was very simple. Uh, I was uh, a high school band director, and I was about to be drafted. And I had no... Uh, qualms about the military my dad was in the navy my brother was in the navy and i looked forward to a navy or to a military career i just didn't want to be drafted so i went to see the navy recruiter and the air force recruiter and said what can you offer me other than being drafted and it was uh, the air force recruiter that said we're only taking pilots right now so i said oh okay i'll try that <clears throat> and uh you know, the, the ignorant are always easy to say, sure, why not? Not knowing how it might be quite a big effort. But uh, so the Air Force recruiter said, go out to the local airport and take about four or five hours of private instruction in a airplane. He said, it won't make you a pilot, but it'll help you with the aptitude test. And so I did that and went out and took uh, some lessons in a Aronka Champ, which was 
uh, turned out to be very faithful for the rest of my career. A rocket champ for you pilots out there know it's a tail dragger, which has unique characteristics in the world of airplanes. And I had four hours of uh, instruction in this Aronka champ and helped me with the aptitude test, and I was accepted to join the Air Force into the the pilot training track. And uh, they were the first to offer. The Navy never called me back in time, and so I beat the deadline for beating the draft. And uh, my career started off with uh, I'm off to be a pilot. So where were, where were, where did you attend? Now you went in as what they call what a ninety day. Uh, what is it? A ninety day wonder or something? I I had finished college, uh, which uh, that was kind of the ticket. You had to have a college degree to get into pilot tra- uh, officer training, and so that was the next step. I uh, at the time I was out of college, but uh, my degree was in music therapy, which uh, didn't count for any kind of a deferment, so I took a few classes in uh, general avia- uh, general education things so I could teach in public schools, and that's when I got into public school teaching in a high- as a high school band director. But uh, I lasted for about a year and a half in that before the Air Force swept me away. And uh, I taught in uh, northern Missouri, uh, town of Gallatin. The, uh, once you sign the bottom line you're on the delayed enlistment program which means you're immune from any attack from the army so you you're promised to go to the air force and uh at the time uh it was just a matter i think it was about five months i had to wait before i had a class date and uh went to omaha for a physical i was blessed with having eyesight and hearing and all the things that they wanted pilots to have in those days and uh so then I went off to the 90-Day Wonder. It's a three-month class to be officer training in the Air Force. It was at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas, and basically they turn you into a second lieutenant. It's kind of basic, but it's it's uh, probably a lot easier than what the Army would have been. Uh, and then I got a class state to go to uh, – Enid, Oklahoma, Vance Air Force Base for pilot training, and that was that would have been in uh, February, March of uh, nineteen sixty nine, and that was a one year one year course. And so I did all my pilot training in uh, Enid, Oklahoma, which was a great place to be, right in the middle of the country. And uh, in those days, you you had three airplanes. It was a basically a Cessna one seventy two. Uh, a T-37, which is a very underpowered little twin-engine jet, and then you fly the T-38, uh, which is the supersonic trainer, which is still used today in many uh, many functions, uh, which is a cool airplane supersonic. It's very much like the F-5, which is a fighter version for many uh, smaller countries. F-5 is a T-38 with guns on it, basically. So you're uh, you're through your flight training, and it seems like your reward for going through and, and earning your wings is they stick a second lieutenant in a caribou in Vietnam. Is that sound about right? Actually, uh, the way they made assignments in those days was uh, 
you had a class rating, how, how well you did on exams, how well you did on flight performance uh, check rides and so on, and the, the top guys in the class got the first choice. So I wasn't in the first half, but most of the Glamour boys wanted fighter pilots. That was the cool thing to do in those days. But uh, we only had two slots for fighter jets, and those both went to Kentucky National Guard guys. So everybody else got an assignment in something with a propeller on it, <laughs> which, uh, as it turned out, looking at all the air, airplanes that the Air Force had in the inventory in those days, I kind of wanted the uh, SU-16, which is an albatross. It was an air-sea rescue airplane. And I had uh, grown up with an affinity for the ocean and sailing and boating, and I thought uh, from what little I knew about the Navy that if I had an assignment in the Albatross, I'd be near the ocean somewhere. And that was as opposed to the rest of the Air Force, which kind of populated uh, North Dakota and Upper Maine and some of the places that are not. Basically, when they said, uh, here's the assignment we've got available, do you like to hunt and fish? which meant it's cold, it's no trees, it's it's a, a wasteland. I didn't want to go there. But uh, anyway, they, they discontinued the albatross, and I didn't get a chance by the time my year was up. And uh, I did get a choice of about three different airplanes, and somebody, an older, wiser pilot, told me, get in the caribou. That's a fun thing to do. A caribou, for those of you that don't know, is basically a tactical cargo airplane. It's a twin-engine uh, its claim to fame is it can land in short fields, a uh, thousand feet or less. Uh, its payload is basically two jeeps or forty combat uh, equipped soldiers, and I spent a year in that, which was great. For a second lieutenant, I upgraded to aircraft commander and then instructor, and I came home after the first uh, year in Vietnam as. Uh, second lieutenant with over 1,200 hours of combat flight time in a twin-engine airplane and uh, some really interesting episodes and experiences. You're calling them interesting episodes. Uh, back then, we were we were trying to win the hearts of the Vietnamese people over, and Vietnamization, I think they called it. Or Anyway, we were trying to make friends, right? So we, humanitarian missions, you were carrying... Anywhere from guns and ammo and we, supplies to live cattle. We right? were we were the trash haulers. We carried anything. It was some sobering uh, missions. Uh, we'd go in and re- carry out body bags, and that was uh, our own people that uh, had been killed in action. Uh, other than that, we carried supplies, ice cream, mail, barbed wire, ammunition. There were some missions that were rated uh, combat essential. That meant somebody's under attack and they're out of ammo. And uh, so that took a little bit of priority and we'd have to go into places that uh, may or may not be under attack from ground fire or whatever. Those were kind of the, the, the tense missions, but we could get in with a pretty heavy load uh, with ammo supplies and so on. And in a short field, actually some of our fields were no more than a, a road that they'd cleared the trees from earlier. And we could, uh, we took great pride in landing in short fields, and uh, it, it was interesting in that it was a challenge. You could, I always thought I could land sideways on a big uh, strategic air command runway because uh, the Caribou was a beautiful airplane for short fields. And uh, some of the stuff we would do for we, – we would haul people, the indigenous 
people, and sometimes they said that we hauled the Viet Cong as well. They they'd show up somewhere and be in line for an airplane ride, and we'd take them. We figured we they weren't going to shoot us if they were on the airplane. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, some of the missions, uh, we would supply uh, some of these villages with their food and. Uh, Vietnam, Vietnamese, and the mountain yards, the Laotian, Cambodian, uh, indigenous people, uh, they would they wanted to see their meat alive before they ate it. They, they wouldn't go for the prepackaged supermarket food or canned meat. And so that meant we were hauling live cows, live pigs, live chickens and ducks, which uh, that meant that live animals don't like airplanes. Anyway, there was a rule of thumb that if if the engines are running, the animals are crapping. <laughs> oh man! Uh, there was there was one special mission that it, it hit home to me that uh, we had been somewhere where our load was a huge basket. Uh, this basket was a thing about eight feet across, and it had probably two hundred ducks in it. And we had another pallet of cabbages. Again, it was like four or 500 pounds of cabbages in a big basket. And then we had some cows and pigs. They were just led on, and they were kind of strapped to the side. And We kind of would hope that they wouldn't panic and stampede or do anything crazy. Well, we landed, uh, after unloading those things, we landed back in uh, Saigon for another load. And in those days when you had animals, you'd call the fire department, and they'd come out and... Uh, they put a hose in the front window of the airplane and you just turn the hose on. They'd hose out the back of the airplane, get all the crap and the pee out of the airplane. But en route, before we delivered this food, uh, live animals, so to speak, I looked back and this basket of cabbages was infested with some kind of worms, like, like inchworms, only they'd hop. And I imagined this 500-gallon glass of champagne you could just see the bubbles dancing only instead of bubbles it was worms and they're dancing all over the airplane and then somehow the the loadmaster they were called engineers actually in caribous but the guy that loaded the pallets uh strapped down a little too tight on the basket of ducks and it broke the basket and so the ducks got out and when you fly into caribou when it's 99 percent humidity and about 88 degrees, 98 degrees temperature. You'd always fly with the back door open and the cockpit windows open, and that created a kind of a ventilation effect where the wind would come in the back door of the airplane, go forward, and out the front. It was not comfortable by any means, but it was livable. Well, these ducks got out, and they followed the airflow, and they are in the cockpit, hundreds of them. And there's, we'd look around, and there's duck crap and feathers and Squawk, squawking ducks in the cockpit and I said to the co-pilot get these things out of here so we're grabbing ducks and throwing them out the window and we're covered with feathers covered with duck crap covered with blood and we're throwing these ducks out the window when a caribou the first thing you encounter if you jump out a window is a propeller so this is a big shredder and this brip 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 we had we had ground duck all over the side of the airplane, plus we were covered in, in duck crap. And you're kind of sweaty, so we're covered with uh, feathers. You'd imagine tar and feather. 
and then we covered the worms are on there, and then to get off the airplane when we finally landed, you got to walk through the cow crap. So it, I realized then that boy, this I've I could have been a high school band director, but no, I'm in the glamour of aviation. What a cool thing to do! Now, were these uh, most of your missions flown during the day, or were night flying, or tell us caribou a was. Uh, Unless it was an emergency rescue or something like that, it was all daytime VFR, visual flight rules. Okay. Uh, and we'd fly almost from dawn to dusk. We'd take off in the morning, and we'd be assigned to some unit, uh, some like first cab, for example, and we'd do whatever they needed to have done, uh, all, whether it was food or ammunition or personnel. We'd be assigned to them for the day, and we would fly them back and forth and uh, – Whatever they needed, it was we were their their logistics link to wherever the supplies were, uh, and that was pretty much dusk, dawn to dusk. And then, uh, like I said, I ended up with twelve hundred hours of flight. Sometimes we'd fly up to twenty two sorties a day. So we take off early in the morning. We keep flying as long as we could and jumping around. We we had some interesting weather in South Vietnam. Uh, it, there were thunderstorms. We did have a weather radar on the airplane. wasn't very good, but we'd kind of pick our ways through thunderstorms. And uh, most caribou pilots got very adept at uh, flying in holes, uh, up canyons, under clouds, quick descent through the hole in the clouds. And so it was it was a great experience for a young second lieutenant to be able to uh, basically be a barnstormer in a fairly heavy airplane so you uh you flew how long you fly to caribous then for did you say about a year it was probably by the time it's it's about a six month training abilene texas was where you went through training that took about six months and then by the time you get to vietnam it's a one-year tour and uh so I was I was there for twelve months, but that included like two weeks in Hong Kong for an R and R, and two weeks back in the States. So I, I basically had a total of a month off on an R and R trips, uh, but it was a good eleven months in country flying the caribou. And uh, toward the I was I was flying caribous uh, in Vietnam from probably about August of nineteen seventy to. Uh, August of 1971, and it's about that time where they were starting to phase the caribou out of service, and they were transferring them over to the Vietnamese Air Force. And so there were some guys that went in to be instructors uh, for the Vietnamese. Uh, the really cushy job was to ferry some of the, the airplanes that the Air Force is going to keep, ferry them back to the States. Well, the caribou only flew 120 miles an hour, 120 knots, so to get from Vietnam to the continental United States, you had to allow a month. You know, island hop all the way back to Hawaii, and that, that was the real vacation because uh, you had to have perfect winds, no more than a four-knot headwind to make it from Hawaii to the States. And so that meant most of the guys that were ferrying airplanes took three or four weeks of vacation in Waikiki, so it was, uh, it was a pretty cushy uh, ferry job, but... I didn't qualify for that bringing the airplanes home because uh, I only had a month left in uh, my Vietnam tour. So they said, oh, you got to have at least 
three months left in your tour to get in on the ferry flights. So the um, you were gonna so you moved on from Caribou's, and I think before you went to B fifty twos, you did refueling. Well, uh, that's one of those things that I thought. Wow, I really lucked out here. That when you have a we were considered in TAC, Tactical Air Command. It was a tactical airlift uh, resource. And from that, most guys were getting assignments to the Strategic Air Command, which was B-52s and uh, uh, air refueling tankers. Well, the plum if you had to go to SAC anyway, the plum assignment was to fly Q-model tankers. Those are the guys that refueled the SR-71 because they had a special fuel they didn't set alert. Uh, they only went TDY temporary duty to Okinawa and Spain, and so it, it was as cushy a job in the in the strategic air command as you could find. Well, I had that assignment. Uh, somehow I spent a lot of time on the phone. And I lucked out and got that assignment till I got to Castle Air Force Base, which is in Merced, California, which is the training base for the 135s and the B-52s. So I checked in thinking I had a KC-135Q model assignment. Well, things changed. Uh, it was one of those things. Uh, everybody that thinks they have an assignment in Q models take one step forward. Not so fast, Brown. And at that point, I was now in the resource pipeline for B-52s, uh, which, in retrospect, they were kind of building up the B-52 force because they knew they were going to uh, at some point, have a major push in uh, bombing Hanoi. So, as it turned out, that wasn't wasn't all that bad. I got on with a good crew. It's about another six months training for the B fifty two. I joined my crew in Guam, and oh, that would have been late seventy one, early seventy two, and uh, was basically there for a year and a half until we pulled out. And during that time, we flew a lot of missions from Guam to Vietnam. Uh, Rolling Thunder was a code name that a lot of people have heard where you'd fly three ships of airplanes, uh, a lead, two, and three, and they'd drop their bombs. And it was more of, I hate to use the word carpet bombing, but they used three airplanes that uh, would cover the biggest area. That This is prior to smart bombs, the, They didn't have the accuracy that they do now or they did uh, even a year later. So they'd call in a B-52 strike, and it would lay devastation to many thousand square feet of of area. And along about uh, December of 1972, we had a special call. Everybody was down. Nobody was flying. Something's going on. And we were called into a briefing, and uh, we were flying the morning of 18th of December, 1972. And I remember vividly there was a couple of colonels from SAC headquarters that had come in for the briefing. The little curtains on the briefing board opened, and there was a big bullseye on the wall right around Hanoi. It said, gentlemen, your target for today. And that was the start of uh, Operation Linebacker 2. And that went on for 11 days. Linebacker 2, um, a lot of people credit that operation to bringing Hanoi back to the peace talks. Uh, I'll agree with that because at the time, uh, Henry Kissinger was in Paris. Peace talks had stalled, and uh, we had never 
done any extensive aggressive uh, action in the north. There, there had been uh, a lot of fighter bombers, but no B-52, no big strikes. Uh, we flew on the first day in the 18th of December, and, uh, boy, I forget how many, but there were roughly 150 B-52s uh, out of Utapau, Thailand, and uh, Anderson Air Force Base, Guam, that uh, swarmed into Hanoi. And, of course, uh, there was a little bit of pressure on that because uh, we had a bunch of Americans POWs there in Hanoi. You didn't want to miss the target. The None of the crews had much respect for the mission planning because the B-52s for the first three days went in like a trail of ants, one after the other, same altitude, same direction, same route. And it didn't take the North Vietnamese long to figure out uh, how to shoot them down. And I think we lost 16 B-52s during that 11-day operation. Most of those were in the the first uh, four or five days. The uh, city Hanoi was protected well with SAMs, I believe. Uh, (laughs) That's an understatement. (laughs) The uh, I remember the first night uh, we get to our target area and coming in we the route was kind of up south of Vietnam into Laos and then we came in from the west across the Red River and there was an undercast you couldn't see anything below us and it was roughly nine o'clock p.m. local time so it was dark and you see a sand launch there would be an orange flash in this undercast and then you'd see well these telephone poles with fire coming out of the back of it coming through the clouds and i uh, i counted 26 of those that was coming at our three ship formation we were lead and we could kind of wiggle around a little bit and uh the way you, you could figure if the sam had you locked on or not is if you're looking out the windshield and you see this sam you can see the glow and you can even though it was at night, you could, there was a moon, you could see this thing coming at you. If you moved the airplane a little bit and the missile held still in the window, in other words, it's moving when you're moving, it had you locked on. As soon as the missile would deviate from its position on the windscreen, you knew you'd lost him. And that was, we had jammers, uh, we had some defensive systems on the B 52. Uh, a lot of it was the fact that we were in a three-ship formation and each airplane had an independent uh, defensive system that uh, they kind of overlapped. So the three-ship uh, formation was complementary to all three airplanes in the system. But I counted 26 SAMs before we got to the IP, which is the initial point, which is <clears throat> from that point on, you pretty much have to say straight and level so the uh, bombardier can lock in on the target the um i've heard it said from bomber crews from world war ii era it's it's a it's a different kind of a warfare air force and bombing you go from pretty nice little existence comfort a lot of comfort sleeping in bed to absolute moments of terror you know in those situations and the stress goes from zero to maximum and uh, it had to have been hard. And then you mentioned, too, that there was a lot of bomb. You know, 16, I think you said, B-52s were lost. So 
That's how did you guys relieve the stress that you were feeling? Um, we happened to be in Guam when uh, this is the uh, 18th to the well, 11 days later, uh, Christmas season. And we're on Guam, no families. Families are back at home. Uh, the wife and kids are looking at headlines that say another B-52 shot down over Hanoi today. And uh, one thing we did was take all the decorations in the officers' club and throw them in the swimming pool. And uh, I'm not saying that was an admirable thing to do, but it seemed after about 15 beers, it seemed like the thing to do at the time. <laughs> we, we were also there when Bob Hope came through with his show. So we we engaged uh, some private shows with Lola Falana. She would, she came to the club one night and danced for the guys. That was She was a very sexy dancer that uh, we mingled with Bob Hope and the crew. So uh, there was... Uh, Probably a lot of a uh, lot of time at the bar that uh, we. I'm sure that the the assigned people on Guam, the, the people that were there with their family on a regular uh, permanent change of station assignment, uh, did not welcome uh, these animals and the, from the crew dogs. But uh, in a way, that's kind of the my experience for most flyers in Vietnam, the caribou. B-52, you you fly into combat and people shoot at you and then you come home and you have steaks on the grill and and lobsters and you've got some of the finest beer and uh, booze at uh, vodka, 60 cents a quart at the BX. And uh, so you, you, in a way we lived well as you can, can be, but uh, when you, when you go to work, you get shot at. So, uh, unlike some of my brothers that were on the ground in the jungle, it, uh, they were under relentless pressure from booby traps and people shooting at them. At least the, the flyers that I was with, uh, we went to war and then we came home and had lobster and steaks. I, I imagine your crew gets pretty tight over that period of time. The, uh, that was one of the, uh, strategic air command, uh, philosophies. They call it an integral crew. And there were there were times when somebody had a cold or something and couldn't fly, you'd fly with another crew. But ninety nine point nine percent of the time, you'd you'd live together, you'd work together, you'd fly together. You knew everybody's silly habits. You knew everybody else's quirks. Uh, the six guys that uh, that I was with, uh, we were very close. We knew each other's stupid habits. In fact. Our rooms, although air-conditioned, which was kind of a luxury, uh, it was one room for all six of us. There would be three guys on one side and three guys on the other with kind of a temporary wall of lockers between us, one toilet, one shower, uh, and all six of us in the same room, which uh, seems kind of close for today's Air Force, but uh, we we absolutely uh, worked, ate, drank, uh, slept and ran around together as a as one unit, and that that helped. In the, uh, we knew each other on the intercom just by the tone of voice. We didn't have to say uh, pilot, this is the navigator, and things like that. It was you knew person a person's voice, and uh, it it was made things a lot easier when we got into the 
where it's crunch time over in Hanoi, uh, we work as a very, very close knit, very efficient team. Well, the um, after the Vietnam War, you moved back to the states, and I guess the Cold War was intensifying, and you were back in the states, I believe, and you were on alert, sitting on the tarmac, I think, with nuclear weapons on board your B fifty two. I guess you're on standby, not quite knowing if you're going to take off. Can you tell us about that? We we did a lot of alert in those days. Uh, I was uh, I had a slightly different crew. Some of them were the same. Some of them had moved on. But uh, uh, again, if you're an integral crew, you know what all the quirks are of your rest of your crew. And we sat alert at Beale Air Force Base, uh, which is north of Sacramento, California. And then at the time. There was a threat, a time threat from submarine-launched missiles, so they had what they called satellite alert, and they moved B-52 alert forces inland, and we would go to Hill Air Force Base, Utah, which is north of Salt Lake City. It's inland, uh, which if you got to sit seven days of alert uh, by yourself, that was a pretty good deal because everybody left us alone. We had our own racquetball court. We, we had great food. Uh, but it was, there were some interesting times there. It was, they had set it up, uh, one time, uh, the way that works, if a klaxon goes off, the routine is you run out to the airplane, you start your engines, uh, you're given a code and basically you open up the, the lock box and it'll tell you that you're going to go fly or you're not going to fly or it's an exercise or whatever. And there was one incidence at Hill Air Force Base that, uh, what we thought was the klaxon. We all ran out and started engines, and uh, we didn't taxi. That's that's escalates it a lot more if you move the airplane away from the parking spot. As it turned out later, it was the pilot light alarm on the water heater that sounds a lot like a klaxon. <laughs> uh, you can bet that the base commander had uh, engineering services out there replacing water heaters the next day, so the strategic air command did not come off their they're alert. You uh, once told us an interesting story when you're stand when you're on alert and you're in the cockpit and you're wearing a patch over one eye. <laughs> Can you tell us about that? Uh, it seems almost inconceivable today, but uh, when you're on alert, you've gone through the training. Uh, your mission could be to take off. Nuclear bombs are going off around you. You take off anyway. Uh, and you fly to your target, uh, which is usually in Asia somewhere, uh, and you may have a, if you hit that target or for some reason you can't get to that target, you have a secondary and a third target. Uh, but as a precaution, now I've never seen a nuclear weapon explode, but uh, from what I've read, it's it's a devastatingly bright light and an electronic pulse, and it can destroy a lot of things, including your eyeballs. So uh, part of the ritual is taking off. The first thing you do is you put thermal curtains in all the windows so you you can't see out, uh, and then you wear an eye patch. <laughs> Unbelievably, that's so that if, if you actually look at a nuclear explosion, it's going to vaporize the eyeball that's looking at that flash of light. So the theory is you've got an eye patch on one eye and you get your other eye vaporized. Well, now you can, can go ahead and fly 
12 hours to your target because you still have one good eye left. <laughs> that's and, incredible. And they, <laughs> they seriously said, oh, okay, yeah, that's that sounds good. We'll do that. <laughs> there's there's all kinds of – we talk to a lot of veterans that come through the museum, and, and PTSD is is something that's not limited to boots on the ground. But it had to be nerve-wracking to kind of be in that kind of a stressful situation, not quite knowing what's going on, whether you're actually going to take off. Uh, I don't think anybody ever believed that we would really go to war, that cooler heads would prevail. Uh, there was there were a couple times where we thought we were going to have to take off. One time uh, we actually did – taxi the airplanes this was at beale air force base which we shared with the sr-71 the famous blackbird that did flies mach 3 and is a reconnaissance airplane well they had a problem on the sr-71 it came back to the pattern and they had a, a starter generator in one of the engine that was overheating and it was actually melting and it was throwing glob- globules of molten metal out of this airplane and it was flying back for an emergency landing well they did not want it to drop molten metal globs on a B-52 alert force that's loaded with nuclear weapons. And at that time, we had anywhere from uh, 6 to 12 nuclear weapons on each airplane. They're real nukes. And so you, you do not want them to, although they were pretty safely built, there was no chance of them detonating in the nuclear way, but... Uh, you just don't want uh, you don't want the weapon to be destroyed. So they were given an alert to start the engines and taxi the airplane, which is in uh, those days uh, they no longer flew alerts, airborne alerts with armed nuclear weapons on board. So that meant every nuke they had was on the ground or in a silo, and it was it was a big deal if you moved uh, an alert airplane full of nuclear weapons, and so. Uh, the decision was made that rather than risk molten metal flying into an alert airplane, we actually taxi it out of the way, and we didn't have to take off. So from the B-52s, you moved into what I call a very elite group of pilots. You flew the U-2. Can you tell us about that? Uh, again, I was very lucky on that uh, that transition. I Right after Vietnam... Uh, they had a thing called the, uh, they would take the, some of the more senior pa- pilots that had some time build up and put them into what they called a rated supplement. It was a, a staff assignment somewhere, anywhere, and it would take, uh, it was guaranteed to be three years. And in my three-year assignment, which was at Whiteman Air Force Base, Missouri, uh, I had time to negotiate where my next assignment was going to be. Since I had come from B-52s, it was pretty much uh, understood that I was going to go back to B-52s, and my home base had been in California, which meant, just to be fair for the other crews out there, I would be going somewhere north that left North Dakota or Upper Maine or Upper Michigan. Well, I don't like cold weather so much, and there was this colonel down the hall that had had some uh, experience with some special assignments that he said, you want to get into the V or the, the U2. That's a, that's a neat way to step your career in the next direction. 
So I was a volunteer, and I got into the U2 program uh, strictly to stay out of North Dakota, which was an odd motivation. And it's a, it was a two-week interview where you go out, and it's it's a, a fraternity. Anybody can say, that guy's, that guy's a nerd. We don't want him to get a black ball. And uh, then you actually fly the airplane. It's a two-seater, so you got an instructor. So you fly the airplane for three rides, and... Most guys flail around on the first mission, and you kind of get what it is like. And then uh, by the third mission, you get to a point where you could probably land it by yourself, and that's the interview, and then you're accepted or rejected, and I was lucked out and was accepted. And uh, I I mentioned earlier when I took those four hours of instruction in the Aranka Champ as a tail dragger, the U-2 is a tail dragger, although it's much heavier and it's a jet, uh, the characteristics of landing it are very much the same. In fact, for that matter, the B-52 is a big tail dragger. It's got two big wheels in front and two in the back, but it it's essentially behaves like a tail dragger. The, the U-2 is a little more sensitive in that it's bicycle gear. You've got one main in the middle and a tail wheel behind it, so you've not only got uh, tail wheel steering and all the complications that come with being a tail dragger, if your wings aren't level, you turn, just like on a bicycle. If you lean, you turn. So that that's one of the things that kind of complicates uh, landing in a in a U two, and it's it's one of those things that uh, I was proud to have done it. I was number three hundred uh, three sixty eight that has ever flown the U two. They're up to about eleven hundred now, and uh, I spent uh, almost twelve years either in flying the U two actively or in some kind of an administrative uh, staff work. And for those of you that don't that don't know anything about the U-2, it flew at very high altitudes. Steve was dressed in an astronaut uniform, and it was unarmed. The only thing you had to shoot was a camera. Uh, and sometimes not that. The, it was uh, the physiology of flying the U-2 is a major part of it. You wear a space suit. It's exactly the same suit that the shuttle pilots shuttle crew war when the uh, launch uh basically if uh a fluid meaning blood will boil at room temperature at 92,000 uh feet and so if you don't have this suit it's, let's say that uh, if you lose pressurization in the cockpit of the U2 that suit keeps you alive keeps your blood from boiling and so You've got uh, all the issues of uh, being sealed in, uh, and, and a U two mission is eight to ten hours. I flew one at twelve and a half hours, so you're in this uh, big rubber bag for twelve hours. And uh, uh, the first question I get when I talk about this to people is, "How do you go to the bathroom?" Well, you wear a kind of an attachment uh, for urine. Uh, and there's there's a whole series of steps you go to make sure that it goes in the right place. Uh, other than that, you you sit in it. You don't wear a diaper or anything. Uh, as far as if you have to go number two, you control that by uh, diet primarily. If you've got a bubble in your intestines the size of a raisin at uh, the cockpit pressures to 35,000 feet, even though it's 70,000 feet outside, that little raisin-sized bubble is a bubble the size of a watermelon. It's going to go somewhere. So it's it's coming out, and whatever else is in there, too. So uh, uh, 
I never had that misfortune of doing that, but we've got some guys dead, and they were notorious that they joined the exclusive Strato Shedder Club. So love it, <laughs> love it. You had one very harrowing mission in the U two when you were coming back to land. Can you tell us that story? Uh, that was an interesting flight. Uh, I had flown. It was a high. It was a training flight. In other words, there were no. Uh, no tactical reason to fly it other than I had some training requirements to get out of the way, and it took off. As it was, it was in January. Uh, took off to recover around eight or so, nine in the evening. It was I was only at altitude at six, about six hours. But uh, when you fly the U two at uh, roughly uh, above sixty thousand feet, you get up between sixty and seventy thousand feet. The outside air temperature is about a minus. 60 to 70 degrees centigrade. That's really, really cold. And uh, I was up there for about six hours. I start my descent coming back to the home base at Beale. And uh, normally, most pilots uh, fly the mission on autopilot when you're at altitude. You can fly it. You can hand fly a U-2 at altitude, but it's it's kind of demands a lot of uh, effort and attention to make sure your cross-check is correct uh i kicked the autopilot off when i was coming back to the home base and i was wiggling the airplane around left and right that's good but no elevator in other words i had no up and down control on the for the elevator for the nose position uh the first thing you do when something seems to be seriously wrong is you take a pause you're not in any immediate danger. You look around and say, what have I screwed up? I'm not going to tell anybody I've got this problem until it's make sure it's not self-initiated. And I looked around. I couldn't see anything that I hadn't done. So I try to push the nose forward. Now it's not going to move. And you you kind of push as hard as you dare, but you, you know that it may give way suddenly, and then you'll, be, you'll overstress the airplane nose down or nose up. It, it would not move. I had left and right control, no up and down. And so by at this time, I called my mobile, which is another U-2 pilot who's the, the backup pilot. He's kind of your eyes and ears on the ground. I called him and said, I've got this problem. And he talks about it. And then the, the thing to do when you've got a serious airplane problem is you report it to your commander, and they call in all the tech reps from Lockheed and the maintenance people and <laughs> You tell them what the symptoms are, and they try to figure out. They get all the the Lockheed engineers from uh, Palmdale and other places, and they said, here's what we think it is. They think it's ice, but it's in January. It's at night. If it is ice, it's not going to thaw out because I've got an hour of fuel left at uh, 40 minutes at this time. And I push and, push and pull, and it, it's not going to give away. So they come back. I'm still descending. I was lucky in that even though it was at night, I did have a horizon. There was uh, like a black earth and gray sky. So I had a, a definitive horizon, and I still had my trim. I had a little button on the yoke that I could very slowly move the nose down, very slowly move the nose up. So I, I wasn't totally out of control, but the advice from the Lockheed tech rep said, we recommend you bail out cannot be recovered without an elevator well most pilots don't don't want to throw an airplane away that's pretty good in other other respects 
And uh, I said, well, I've got not the best, but marginal control. I'm going to come back and uh, attempt a landing. I've got enough fuel for one landing attempt. And it's it's the aircraft commander's decision. It's not that they, I was overruling. Their recommendation was bailed out. I said, eh, I'm going to try something else first. And so I came back, did a low approach, lined up on the runway, and knowing that you're not going to be able to change the trim or the angle of attack or the nose up much, I was I was out on final for the runway at about uh, five miles at about 200 feet. So you're really low to the ground on almost a stall, which my theory was that when I get over the runway, it's not going to take much. I can pull the throttle to idle, and I'm not going to have to change the attitude of the airplane much. So that was my best shot. I came down and landed. It was uh, it wasn't as smooth as I had hoped, but uh, there was no damage done, no problems. Uh, I landed. I was a minor hero and saved the airplane. As it turned out, there had been a rainstorm the night before. The cockpit was open. It had about nine inches of water in the lower fuselage that totally tied up the elevator controls. It, in fact, it took about five days for that to thaw out. So wow. I like to say there's a Steve Brown memorial uh, fixed to that. They put in new hangars so they never had to have the airplane outside anymore, and they put a drain hole in the bottom of the fuselage. So wow, that was my contribution to modifying the U-2. Well, you gave us a lot of man, a lot of historical uh, information. Great, uh, great storytelling there. Can you wrap up real quick before we end tonight? Kind of what what was after the U two, and, and kind of uh, what led uh, up to you know where you ended up at the end of your career after your, after your flying career there. I'll, I'll tell you, a really interesting viewpoint on this is I was uh, in the Air Force in the Cold War, sitting armed, nuclear alert. We had uh, specific targets throughout uh, Russia and Eastern Europe. Uh, when I got into the U-2 later, we're still in the Cold War. We took uh, we were flying in those days uh, monitoring places like uh, the Middle East, East Germany, Russia. And basically the Air Force taught me how to fly. So I got out of the Air Force and I went into uh, general aviation. I got a job flying private jets. Uh, One of my last jobs was flying for a Spanish banker out of Spain. And he had a buddy who was the president of Real Madrid, the soccer team. And you soccer fans out there know that that was, that was pretty big. It's like the New York Yankees of soccer. And uh, we took, uh, we didn't, I didn't fly the players, but we had a 10 passenger jet that I was flying and, we flew the 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 suits, the administrators, the president, and some of the bosses. So we went to all the out-of-town games. Well, the out-of-town games were in places that used to be targets. <laughs> we, okay. We uh, knew them very well then. <laughs> we uh, Well, I knew them from the air. And one interesting place, we went to Murmansk, Russia, which is the home of Red October, the big black uh, boomer submarines. It's a harbor on the very northern rim of Russia. We went in there, and I was like 100 yards from these big black submarines. We had flown from England to Murmansk uh, a decade earlier taking pictures of submarines, and now here I am 
with my smartphone, I can take pictures from <laughs> mere feet away. And, and we went to Minsk and Belarus and Bulgaria and places that, man, I recognize these places. They used to be targets. And uh, to me, that was uh, an amazing uh, change of events and being able to go from target study and to being on the ground in, in places like Russia. That, that was an interesting cap on a flying career. Well, we're so we're so glad that we got to have you in studio today, uh, uh, Mr. Brown. And uh, thank you so much for your service, for your contribution to this country, and uh, everything that you've done uh, post career as well. Uh, we are, you know, here we're here to um, just be able to tell the stories of the veterans, and you did a really good job today of of telling your story. And and um, with that, uh, we'll just say thank you. We're going to go ahead and end. So I, want, I want to add sure, one thing real quick. Yep. Uh, here in the studio with me tonight is my wife of 53 years, Rita. And all this stuff that I got to do, somebody stayed home and raised the kids. I owe that to my wife, and she's here today. Absolutely, and thank you for saying that. Uh, families don't get enough credit, and that I'm, I'm really happy you did that. Um, so we're going to go ahead and um, sign off for the Dog Tag Podcast from the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. Dog Tag is brought to you by the St. Charles County Veterans Museum. The museum is a 501c3 nonprofit business. Do you like our podcast? With your support, we'll continue to bring you great programming. If you'd like to donate, go to sccvetsmuseum.org and click on Donate. This podcast is sponsored by the Renee S. Real Estate Agency, located here in O'Fallon, Missouri. She is licensed in Missouri and Illinois and focuses on your personal and commercial insurance needs. Her office is located at 2764 Highway K, O'Fallon, Missouri, 63368. She can be reached at 636-379-9556 or by email at reneesry at allstate.com, R-E-N-E-E-E-S-S-A-R-Y at allstate.com. If you are shopping for insurance and want an active agent that will educate and advise you on the coverage you need, reach out to her. Join us next week on the Dog Tag Podcast when our guest will be Laura Paskoff of Wright Construction in St. Peter's, Missouri. Each year, Wright Construction hosts the 22 Strong Challenge, an event that honors and supports United States military veterans. In 2022, Building Change will offer a 22-day virtual challenge, a 22-mile in-person walk, and a 2.2-mile in-person walk. The number 22 is significant to our event because it represents the 22 veterans who lose their lives to suicide every day. Our goal is to support our community of veterans and bring awareness to the charities we support. Virtual walkers joined us from 18 states across the country, and over 100 people walked with us in St. Charles, Missouri, on September 11, 2021. In 2022, we will host our fourth annual event series. The goal of each of these events is to raise awareness and funds for organizations dedicated to eliminating veteran suicide.